Hello and welcome, or actually welcome back, we hope, to week five of the Tortoise podcast with me, Kerry Thomas. Hello, and Basha Cummings. Hello, Basha. When we set off five weeks ago, we said we were going to try to make a bunch of podcasts about the election, but the fact is we, we keep getting distracted. Indeed. First, we got distracted by... Prince Andrew. How could we not get distracted by Prince Andrew? We Andrews? were not the only ones, were we? And then we felt like we had to cover the amazing things that are still happening in Malta. And actually this week, again, we're not going to focus directly on the election. But actually, it's not so much that we've been distracted. It's more that politics and the whole election campaign got distracted by what happened on London Bridge last Friday. Two people have died in what the Metropolitan Police are describing as a terrorist incident on London Bridge. The attacker was later shot dead. Officers rushed to the scene, dozens, then hundreds. Ambulances too. There are reports of casualties. There were people running across the bridge into the road. Several members of the public managed to wrestle them to the ground, and their bravery has been widely praised. We looked over, it looked like there was a fight going on, and then you realised it was um, police. Um, wrestling with one tall, bearded man. So what happened was a man called Usman Khan stabbed five people last Friday. Two of them died. A man called Jack Merritt and a woman called Saskia Jones, who were both in their early 20s. And they were both working at a conference which was organised by a, a criminal justice rehabilitation group. And Khan, who was there, he had been released from prison in December last year after serving about eight years of a 16-year sentence for a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange. Now, of course, it's probably futile and naive to imagine that that an incident like that wouldn't get politicised, slap bang in the middle of an election campaign. But I think it was still surprising just how much it was politicised. And Jack Merritt's father wrote this beautiful and incredibly powerful opinion piece for the Guardian newspaper. And I think it's worth, Kerry, going back to what he wrote. So David Merritt wrote, if Jack could comment on his death and the tragic incident on Friday the 29th of November, he would be livid. Jack would understand the political timing with visceral clarity. He'd be seething at his death and his life being used to perpetuate an agenda of hate that he gave his everything fighting against. It was amazing. amazing. It's an amazing piece. So, of course, there was this outcry at the politicisation of the deaths of these two young people, but particularly, it has to be said, by Boris Johnson, who put the blame on Usman Khan's release from prison and on laws that he said were brought in by the previous Labour government. Yeah, but the truth was, if you could get beyond the political scrap, yeah. there was also an important bigger question, which what happened on London Bridge raised, which is how we as a society deal with people who might have terrorist sympathies even after they've served a prison sentence, as Osman Khan had, and, and even how we treat people we suspect might have terrorist sympathies, which they haven't acted on. So it was in investigating this question of how we, as a country, Britain, deal with people who are su suspected of terror or engaged with terror, we came across something that's quite unique and quite shocking. And, and we came across this story of somebody who is known only as N3. He's a man without a name, without a country that he can call home, and without even without the right to know what exactly he's being accused of. So the reason we can only call this man N3 is because a court's ruled that we can't reveal his real identity. And he's stuck at the moment in a sort of legal limbo abroad, effectively stateless, while his wife and his three children remain in London. And now he's facing the prospect of being deported 
to a country he left a long time ago when he was just three years old. And in telling the story of N3 in this podcast, we explore this extraordinary power that the British government has given itself, which is the power to strip people of their citizenship, even if there's no guarantee that they can become citizens of another country. Yeah. So we've been working with a journalist called Robert Vercake, who's been reporting on terror and national security for 20 odd years. And Robert says he's seen this huge shift in the way the government is using these things that are known as deprivation orders. In recent years, they've got more and more common. So after he discovered this case of this man called N3, Robert travelled to Calais to interview him. You've got the shopping centre and you've got all these people pushing their shopping trolleys around and then across the car park you've got this, these high walls, a one um, iron gate with an intercom buzzer on it and you, you press that and you, you announce who you're visiting. Uh, and is there like a sign over the door? There's no sign, there's just a intercom and if you know which button to press then you will get through to the, the the camp detention officer who they eventually send a couple of officers out to open the iron gate and then there's quite then after that you get you go into the um detention reception and that's when the security really does kick in actually you did they it's one of the toughest um body searches I've I've ever had I mean, they told me that N3 was ready to meet me and they led me down some stairs into another room which they had to unlock and the officer ushered me in and sitting in front of me was N3. What did he look like? He was very casually dressed. I think he had tracksuit trousers on, a sweatshirt. He, he had a beard. The thing about him was he was, he was very friendly, but I think that masked a serious um, fear of what was about to happen to him because he knew that the next day the French could deport him to Bangladesh country. He'd left when he was three years old. So what is N3's background in all the years before he, you, know, you meet him in this quite dystopian-sounding interview room? What did he do? So N3, he grew, grew up in London, he did his, did his GCSE, he's got brother and sister, his, both his parents were actually British. When he came to, to Britain when he was three, his father was already here. But then he, so he did his GCSEs, he was going to do his A-levels, he dropped out of college because he was offered a really good job by the council as a mediator in um, gang conflicts in his part of, of London. And he was obviously very good at this because he he was promoted to be a um, team leader. He also worked in, uh, he worked for a corps as someone who who advised on drug treatment plans for drug addicts. Um, and he also he worked for a, a charity which intervened in cases where young people were clearly off, going off the rails. In 2010, he, he worked for a charity in this country called Human Aid, fundraising and um, collecting clothes. So he spent his whole life, really, either in you know, social work or charity work. That's what he's, all, all he's ever known. That took him to Turkey and Syria, which is where his problems really accelerated. Is that right? That's that's what that's what he says. Yeah, he 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 went to he went to Turkey um, with human aid to establish a, a medical project 
and this, amb- this 999 ambulance service. That was what he was doing in, in Syria. Yeah, and so then it's around this time, isn't it, that he starts to come to the attention of the security services. And you talked to him about that when you uh, while you were in Calais. And we can't use his words because we can't identify him, but we've had what he said voiced up by one of our colleagues here at Tortoise. I went to immigration. I went to the self-service machine. It didn't let me through, and they told me to go to the desk. I went to the desk, and the lady told me to sit over there. Then two guys in suits, one white guy, one Asian guy, they told me to come with them to a room. I'll be honest with you, at first I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, but when I finished the meeting, I was scared. They went through my luggage, they were asking me, do I pray, what must do I pray at, what are my political views, what do you think of people who eat pigs? So given the nature of this case, that it's it's involved with national security, we know very little about what the government is saying that he was up to. So what do we know about why he's now being stripped of his citizenship? So these deprivation of citizenship orders are based on intelligence assessment by the security services. And the subject of them tends not to know very much apart from a a statement which encapsulates everything that the security service has. In N3's case, all that's alleged is that he was aligned to an organisation that was aligned to Al-Qaeda. And that, that's, that's all we know. A charity organisation that was aligned to Al-Qaeda? or a Yes, a charity yeah. organisation, yeah. So he knows no more than that, and um, only the security services know the, the, the background to why they've made that allegation. But Robert, the Home Secretary surely can't just take away someone's citizenship without a court saying that's okay. No, not not. It's not required. These are these are orders that can be made by the Home Secretary, simply on the advice of the security services. All he has to do is is sign it. It's up to the subject of the deprivation order to then seek legal advice and challenge the order in court, which is what N three has done. So in N 3s case, he was born in Bangladesh, came to the UK when he was three years old. He's now been stripped of his citizenship because the British government say that he also has Bangladeshi citizenship or has access to it because the British government can't make him stateless, but he's contesting that he has that citizenship and that is the root of this particular legal battle. Is that right? That's right. That's that's exactly what's happened. So he successfully argued that... He's not a or does not have claim to Bangladeshi citizenship. And the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, which heard his case in October, found that that was exactly the situation. He did not, he could not claim to be Bangladeshi. So the case has been appealed by the Home Office. And that judgment went against in three, but only to the point the obligation to establish whether he's a citizen is now placed upon him rather than the the government in this case you know, it, it's it's critically important because if that if that is the situation then the government merely has to assert that you can claim an alternative nationality for them to impose a deprivation of citizenship order it's up to you to to show that that isn't the situation so the background Politically, 
while this is going on with N3 is, as you mentioned, the situation in Syria had intensified. There were beheadings. We knew about Mohammed Mwazi and the Beatles. Do you feel that that has has sort of, you've seen a shift in how the security services are dealing with people like N3? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When N3 was, when he, when he left Britain in 2013 and he was spoken to by the security services, it was all, the atmosphere was very much, this was the Arab Spring, this was another country that would um, fall to a democratic revolution and someone from Britain who had an interest in helping the Syrian people was to be encouraged. Back in 2013, when I was travelling out of the country, they stopped me at the airport. So obviously it wasn't immigration or anything. I think they were from intelligence. They asked me where am I going, what am I doing, how much money I have. So obviously I provided them with the necessary paperwork and they said, it's a good job you're doing, good luck. But by 2017, obviously everything has changed. Assad is back in control. Islamic State have established a caliphate. British jihadi fighters have committed atrocities, including beheading a number of hostages uh, and videoed that and sent that all around the world. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Two thousand seventeen, the government has decided to embark on this kind of rollout of deprivation of citizenship orders. So the, this marked a peak in terms of numbers of, of orders when N three received his. There were 104 in 2017, which is you know, the highest there's ever been. By because we didn't use these things for year after year, did we, before, you know, from the latter part of the last century through to the early part of this. They were a power that the Home Secretary had. But am I right, they weren't used very much? These specific 
orders actually came into force uh, under under the last Labour government, and they were used very very rarely. You know, we're talking about a handful, and then 2017, they shot up. And this was predominantly for terror-related offences. Is that right? Yeah, these these. 104 in 2017, almost exclusively people alleged to be involved in terrorism and almost exclusively people in the Middle East, notably Syria and Iraq. So there's clearly a moment in 2014 where there's a shift in legislation that, that's a real turning point, Rob. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's critical, especially in, the, in a case like N3, because up until 2014, the government could only use a deprivation of citizenship order on someone who had a formalised dual nationality. So they had an established legal right to be in another country. But 2014, that moved and all the government needed to do was to assert that you had a right to passport of another country and then they could impose this deprivation order. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because what does that do to anybody who's a immigrant to this country or a recent immigrant who could have this theoretical right it must make you feel insecure in your in your place in this country mustn't it? It, it i know because i've been speaking to, to lots of lawyers about this relatively new law or a new way of using it and lawyers literally have muslim families going on holiday to turkey who come into their office and ask them if i go on holiday with my family to wherever what chances of me losing my citizenship when I'm out there? I mean, that's the kind of fear and suspicion that this kind of law has brought to our own Muslim communities. Robert, I think we're we're being very careful not to assume too much about N3. We haven't been told very much by the British government about what they what they think about him or why they've while they've deprived him of his citizenship. But let me put you on the spot. Let's say he was to come back to the country and then do something awful, a London Bridge attack. How would you feel then? I would be obviously shocked and horrified, but you're asking me whether or not I can, by sitting down with him for 45 minutes, establish his propensity to commit an act of terrorism in two, five, ten years' time. That isn't something that anyone can really do. You you can't never get inside someone's mind. You'll okay. never, and you we'll know never, that for sure? I, I know that for sure because I interviewed Mohammed Amwazi, who was also known as uh, Jihadi John, about four years before he appeared on television beheading British hostages. So I know that it's very, very difficult to know what a human being is capable of doing. But if someone had said to you when you sat down with Mohammed and Mwati in four years' time, this guy will be... The most notorious. The most notorious man in the world, videoing the beheading of hostages, aid workers, journalists, you'd have been surprised or...? Yeah, the man who I interviewed in 2010 was not the same man, or I didn't recognise him in terms of not just what he was doing, but the way he presented himself 2014, 2015 as the sort of executioner chief of the Islamic State. But that was a you know, terrible journey that, that he went on that 
it's difficult to know who could have stopped it. I mean, the security services, you know, because they had they they'd spoken to him as well. I'm not, you know, I'd spoken to him. They'd spoken to him. Police had spoken to him. So he at eventually that time, did go sorry, to. He was being interviewed and and sort of put pressure on by the security services who knew that he was involved with some other people in London who were moving towards a more extremist Islamic faith. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That- yeah. Their concern was that there was a sort of cohort of young Muslim men from, from London, North and West London, who were interested in violent Islamism. And he was on the radar, you know, he was mixing with people who they had genuine concerns about, and who ended up in places like Somalia and were part of terror groups in Somalia. So, you know, there was good reason to take an interest in him. The point is... At what point do you say that this man is potentially such a serious threat to society that we're going to have to, we're going to lock him up because we think that his connections make him a genuine terror threat four years down the line? I mean, that's a judgment that the security service have to make all the time and it's a tough judgment. Yeah, because, I mean, you put your finger on it completely. You said earlier, who could have stopped Mohammed Mwadi? becoming what he became. So I suppose in a sense you could say, all right, if the security services had said to the British government around the time that you were interviewing him that this man is so dangerous that we need to find a way to stop him travelling, let's say, which it would have been within their within their power to do, they might have been able to stop him going to the, to the Middle East and doing what he did. But we, journalists, others, might have complained that he, he was being treated unfairly because we didn't have access to all the information the government and security services had access to at that point. That's true. The journalists will never be able to make the same assessment that the security services make. They're making a very different I mean, Their job's much harder than ours, obviously, because buck stops with them. Our job is to scrutinise as best we can the powers that are used in our name. But if, if the security services or the government had found a way to, let's say, lock up the Mohammed Mwazi that you saw when you first met him because they were afraid that he might do something, then you probably would have written an article saying this is unfair, wouldn't you? Absolutely, yeah. And he wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to hold him for very long because the law would have intervened and he would have been released. You know, even, if they, even if we did have those powers and we did hold him for four years and as a result he never carried out those atrocities, who would ever know? Who would ever know how many hundreds of other people would be in detention purely because there's a suspicion? Could the British government at that moment have issued a deprivation of citizenship order? Because it feels like what we're talking about is they're quite retroactive. They're used once a person has has been deemed to engage in some kind of activity that is, as per the British government's reasoning, not conducive to the public good. But could they be used preemptively? Yeah, I mean, they, they, can use, they can use them whenever they feel that there's a, a case to be made, when they feel they have the intelligence and they feel they could make them. The interesting thing is they don't make them when the subject is resident in this country. They tend to almost exclusively, but it's once a person has left this country, you'd think that might be the point where they might want to bring charges or test this suspicion in the courts but they tend to wait until subjects left the country and it's at that point that they impose a deprivation of citizenship order 
So I know this is a different case with very different context, but I can't but be reminded um, of Shamima Begum, who was the teenager who left Bethnal Green and travelled to Syria to join Islamic State, which in some ways felt even more striking since she was underage when she left the country. So the Home Secretary's deprived you of your British citizenship? Yeah. But I've heard other people are being sent back to Britain. So I don't know why my case is any different to other people. Or is it just because I was on the news four years ago? It's kind of heartbreaking to read. I, I thought it would... My family made it sound like it would be a lot easier for me to come back to the UK when I was speaking to them in Barros, but it's kind of... It's kind of hard to swallow. What felt particularly significant there was that unlike with N3, Bangladesh did get involved. She is, a, she is not a Bangladeshi citizen. She never applied for Bangladesh citizenship. She was born in England and her mother is a British. Well, under international law, she cannot be left stateless. Th th therefore, based on what you're saying, does she you appear see, to, you to be stateless? We have nothing to do with it. It's the British government. In the case of N3, he's now stuck in France, who are trying to deport him. The French surely are not so happy about being landed with somebody who we believe is involved in terror. This is a policy that was always going to unravel and was always going to wash up back at the, like our own borders. Because especially in a situation like his, where he was, he was let's remember, he was a British citizen when he tried to enter Britain. I imagine the French are going to be incandescent with irritation about the, this British policy of dumping their terror problems on other states. You said he was worried, obviously, because he was facing a court case where he could have been sent back to Bangladesh. So what, actually, what happened? Yeah, he was taken from his prison cell, armed guard, to Lille. His case was heard by the panel of three judges and... The French ruled that he couldn't be deported to Bangladesh. They hadn't given their reasons on Tuesday for for why this is the case, but clearly they'd found enough. What he'd said, what his lawyer had, had argued, that he doesn't have a genuine claim to Bangladesh citizenship. But they haven't freed him. The British say he's not British. The French say he can't go back to Bangladesh, but they still want to remove him from the country. So he really it's, is stuck. There have been situations where other foreign states have agreed to take stateless people in in this situation where, where they seem to have no claim to any state. But these cases have not ended well. You know, these are people sort of dumped in small countries in Africa where where they've never set foot before and probably can't speak the language. And you, know, you never hear about them ever again. I mean, this wow. is more medieval than, than banishment. This is deportation by connivance. And, and the law says that the British government can't make someone stateless, but here and now, as we're talking, N3 is pretty well in that position, isn't he? You, you'd say so, because legally, that's, if the British are saying he's not British and the French say we can't deport him to Bangladesh, then, yeah, what, where, where is he? Who is he? What, what nationality does he say he is?
Since we recorded this podcast, we've had word from Robert via N3's lawyers to say that he's been released from the detention camp and he's now under house arrest in northern France, where he'll be fighting the next stage of his battle against the British government. Podcasts are just one of the things that we do at Tortoise. We're what we call a slow news publisher. We're all about what's driving the news, not breaking news. We publish every day in our app and online, and you can read a long read from Robert Vercake about the story of N3 on our website. And if this podcast has got you interested in Tortoise, then here's what you can do. If you go to tortoisemedia.com slash friend and use the code POD50, P-O-D-50, to become a member of Tortoise for just a pound a week, which is half our regular price. in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now? The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.